will, and turn with me to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, as we continue in our study of the book of Ezra. And this morning we want to look at the ministry God blesses. Ezra chapter 8. I know that most of you thought I should have Dan read verses 1 through 16, but I saved him the, the difficulty of saying all those wonderful names this morning. But uh, the passage that I had him read fits very well, I believe, into what we want to talk about this morning and what God has for us, I believe, from Ezra chapter 8. Uh, I want to begin with the reference that we found there in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. No doubt a familiar reference to you, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. And briefly, I want to you to notice five things in that text. Number one is the assembling of ourselves together, I believe is a clear reference to the New Testament church of which every believer is to be a faithful member. This is an example that's given throughout the book of Acts, beginning in Acts chapter 2. The ch- a church is a pillar and ground of the truth, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, has been commissioned to fulfill the great commission in Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And the commission has been given to the apostles who were the representatives of the churches. Now, such a great and glorious work requires faithful workers. And those who neglect the church are neglecting their spiritual duty. No human institution can be successful apart from committed and faithful members. That's true for a business. That's true for a football team or a government agency. But it's especially true for the church, a local church. Uh, Paul said, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Secondly, to neglect the assembly is spiritually dangerous. As the church needs every believer, every believer needs the church. Uh, Every believer needs the church's ministry of teaching and of shepherding. It's a matter of spiritual wisdom and safety. And just as a child needs his parents, a believer needs a pastor and fellow believers. Uh, The church is the local manifestation of the family of God, and it is where the child of God finds shelter and assistance in a dangerous world. Thirdly, we see the importance of the ministry of exhortation. It says here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, but exhorting one another. The believer should not attend the assembly merely to be a spectator or merely to learn. He should attend uh, to contribute something. He should be there to exhort his brothers and sisters in Christ and to encourage them, to challenge them, to speak a word of warning even as if needed. The word exhort is a word which is translated entreat or desire or beseech or comfort, call for and pray in other passages of the New Testament. It's the importance of the ministry of exhortation. Fourthly, we see a faithfulness to the house of God will be increasingly important as the coming of Christ draws near. It says there in Hebrews 10.25, And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. 
The New Testament warns that apostasy will increase throughout the church age. Apostasy is likened to the tares which the devil sows and which will grow up together with the true seed throughout this age. Apostasy is likened to leaven which a woman hides in a loaf of the true churches until the whole was leavened. Paul warned, for the time will come when they will endure sound doctrine, uh, will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Therefore, it's important that God's people be increasingly cautious as the day of Christ draws near. It's a necessary part of spiritual safety to be faithful to the New Testament church. This reminds us, of course, of how important it is to be a strong and godly Bible-based church as opposed to one that is morally careless and lukewarm and based on man-made tradition. And then fifthly, the, this verse says God's people can see the day approaching. And though the return of Christ is imminent and could happen at any time, and though the rapture is not preceded by specific events in the same sense of those that precede the glorious appearing at the end of the tribulation, the age will grow increasingly evil and increasingly like the days of Noah so that a believer can have a general idea that Christ's return is coming soon. Now I want our church to be a ministry that God truly blesses. I refuse to be a program manager, if you please. As someone has put it, a program manager of the latest creative programs that will attract carnal Christians. I'm not here to entertain you. Uh, The person, uh, uh, sometimes uh, a I, you know, I receive calls in, on the phone here at the church from time to time, and a bunch of them are telemarketers. And one of them called this, uh, this week, this last week, and they, the person said, Hello, from Faith Driven Entertainment. I hung up. I didn't need to hear any more. You see, I want to shepherd a flock that hungers and thirsts after reality with God. I want the living Savior to be at work in our midst in unmistakable ways. I want to remove every hindrance that would block God's hand of blessing. And I want to add every quality that will bring His blessing on this church. And here in the book of Ezra, Ezra testified to King Artaxerxes in chapter 8 and verse 22. He says, The hand of our God is upon them for good that seek Him, but His power and His wrath is against them that forsake him. I want us to be a people that seek God rather than forsake God. Now last week we looked at the life that God blesses. This week we're going to look at the work or the ministry that God blesses. And this chapter gives an account of the journey of about 5,000 exiles, including women and children from Babylon to Jerusalem. And the phrase here... The hand of our God. We saw that in chapter 7 and verse 6 and 9 and 28. And here in chapter 8, it occurs three more times. You find it there in in verse 18. And by the good hand of God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Meli, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, the son of Sherebiah, and his sons and the brethren, 18. You also find it there in verse 22. 
For I was ashamed to require of the king's band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy by the, in the way, uh, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all of them for good that seek him, for his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. And then you also find it in verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Hava, Hava, on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us. You find it three times, and we find there are three ingredients in the work that God blesses. God blesses the work that seeks to honor Him by modest faith, moral integrity, and motivated worship. And honoring God is the major thrust of this chapter. Now, Ezra refused to accept an armed escort from the king because he had told the king how God had was there to protect his people. And so these people put their faith on the line by venturing out into a robber-infested desert with no human protection. And then also Ezra wanted to honor God by a strict accounting of the silver and gold and other resources that they were transporting to Jerusalem. And the reason these people were making this difficult and dangerous journey was to honor God by worshiping at his house. I want you to notice again, verse 25, or go back to verse 17. I sent them and commandment to the Idu, the chief of the place of Kasephiai, and I told them that they were uh, should say unto Idu and to his brethren, the Nethodims, at the place of Kasephiai, Aya, that they should bring us unto ministers for, what? The house of God. Go down to verse 25. And weighed unto them the silver and gold and the vessels, even the offering of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his Lord and all the Israel there present had offered. Verse 29, watch ye and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests of the Levites and the chief of the fathers of Israel at Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of God. Verse 30, so took the priests and the Levites the weight of silver and gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our God. Verse 33, now on the fourth day was the silver and the gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And, and with him was Jehoshaphat, and the son of Jeshua, and uh, Nodiah, the son of Benui, uh, Levites. And then verse 36. And they delivered the king's commissions unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors on this side of the river, and they furthered the people and the house of God. I want us to see how God blesses the work that of those who seek to honor him, first of all, by modest faith. Now, I use the word modest in the sense of humbleness. Ezra's humble faith in the Lord shines through in a, two different ways. In the roster of people who were willing to commit themselves to this difficult enterprise and in making this journey without armed protection. And I believe we honor God by trusting him to raise up qualified leaders for the work. You know, it's one thing to go and ask the king's permission to lead a delegation of exiles to Jerusalem. But it's another thing actually to get volunteers to commit to the difficult task 
of giving up their comfortable situations in Babylon and to make the move back to an uncertain future in Israel. Now we have a list of names here in verses 1 through 14. It begins with the priestly families in verse 2, and then those that were the royal line of David in verses 2 and 3, followed by the 12 lay families in verse 3 through 14. Uh, They could be representative of all of Israel. The number of men listed here is 1,496 plus 18 heads of the family, totaling 1,514. Uh, adding in the 258 Levites and the temple servants assembled together uh, brings the total to 1,772. Uh, the women and the children will bring the group to around 5,000 compared to almost 50,000 had come on the first return. Now one significant fact, I think, about this list is that everyone except for Joab in verse 9 is connected to the pioneers who had first returned 80 years before. This implies the original challenge to the return in the days of Cyrus had had a very mixed response, dividing individual clans right down the middle. The phrase there in verse uh, 13, I believe it is, uh, and of the last sons... The last sons, that may indicate that these descendants represented the final members of the the clan residing in Babylon. But the fact is, these families were split up. And that points to the comfortable lifestyle in Babylon and the, 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 that contributed to the spiritual indifference of the retur- those who were returning to the faith and the commitment of those who did return. The same thing happens today in families. There are some who are in families, uh, some of you are in families, and, and you know of those in your family who are committed, those who just rather stay home and be in the comfort of their homes today. It's no small task to organize a pilgrimage of 5,000 people, including children, across 900 miles. Wow, 900 miles of hostile desert. The group began on the first of the first month, According to chapter 7, verse 9, but they paused for three days at a canal that runs to Ahava. And Ezra took stock of the things. He discovered, hey, there were no Levites present. And there were three groups of priests, all descended from Levi, the high priest, the ordinary priest, and the Levites, the lowest order, who cared for the service of the sanctuary. Temple servants called Nethanims there in verse 20. They assisted the Levites in their task. And it may be that none from these two groups had joined the returning exiles because of both the hardship of returning or also the bottom of the ladder status of their task in the temple. I don't know. But even though their jobs were not as glamorous as that of the priests, they were essentially, they were essential if the priests were going to be freed up to do their work. And so Ezra selected nine leaders. Along with two men, he calls their men of understanding. You see there in verse 16, men of understanding. And he sent them to Idu, the leading man of what was apparently the meeting of Levites. And he briefed this delegation on what they should say. In verse 17, it says, And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding. Along with some other Levites, totaling 38 
And also there were 220 temple servants persuaded to accompany the returning exiles. And these 258 and their families had a very short notice to make a decision to return, to pack up and to join the waiting group, which started out across the desert on the 12th day of the first month, according to verse 31. But here we see, what we see is Ezra's humble trust in God in his faithful acknowledgement that these men joined the group because the good hand of our God is upon us. He recognized that God had put it in the hearts of his people to be willing to serve, even in the tasks that were not so flashy, not so out out in front. I want you to see uh, three things about this, three observations that I make here. Number one is qualified leaders for the work requires workers as well as leaders. If you have leaders without an adequate number of workers, the leaders will have too much to do and thus will be hindered from giving proper leadership. If you have workers but inadequate number of leaders, the workers will not have the direction or the understanding of the work that is needed. In other words, all the parts of the body of Christ are necessary for the proper functioning of the whole. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a ministry where God wants you to serve in a local church, which is the body of Christ. This church is the body of Christ in this location, and workers are just as vital to the Lord's work as leaders are. Now, which part of the body would you like to do without? You know, your human body. Which one of your limbs would you want to do without? Every part of the body is crucial. And I think, uh, of course, this is something that is very important for us to think about. I came across some quotes that I thought were very appropriate for this uh, particular point here, and I just want to share them with you. If you're not involved in a ministry, you're wasting God's grace investment upon your life. If you're not involved in ministry, you're wasting God's grace investment in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be the leader, but you can be a worker. Another quote I came across was, Ministry is the vehicle of transportation and distribution of God's grace to the lost world. We need people who are willing to take the message of the gospel to a lost world and tell them about God's grace. And then think about this. We cannot expect spiritual fruit from an unplanted seed. It's about time to start your gardens here or think about it. But you leave those seeds in the package in your house, you're not going to have a garden. And if we leave the seed of the gospel in our own lives, in our own, just leave it here and don't get it out, don't expect any fruit. God's work requires workers as well as leaders. Secondly, now that that was the easy point. This one's a little more controversial. Leaders should be male. Some of you say, well, wow, pastor, are you ever out of step with the times? Listen, folks, I'd rather be out of step. I'd rather be in step with the Bible and out of step with the times than be in step with the times and out of step with the Bible. Now, I said 
Leaders in God's work should be male. I did not say workers should be male. Okay, ladies, you're not off the hook. But the list here lists the numbers of men. It does not list the uh, does not give the women and the children. In chapter eight and verse one, you find there the phrase "the chief of their fathers." Ezra knew the structure of his society well enough to to direct his appeal to the heads of the families, knowing that in most cases they came, uh, they would bring their groups with them. You know, if the men come, well, they're going to bring the women with them and the and the children too. The modern church strategy often reverses this. Many churches today go after the children first, and they neglect the husbands and the fathers. Now, I'm not against children's ministries. I'm not against a bus ministry or vacation Bible school. In fact, I was saved in vacation Bible school. I'm not against those things. But they are not probably the most effective in getting long-term results. We need to see men saved. Men submitting themselves. We need to see the men of our church taking the leadership. Now, has... The principles of God's word change because the structure of our society has changed. You see, that's, this is not a popular point with many people today. Maybe some of you ladies will even say, well, I don't know about what pastor's saying. But you know what? The New Testament is very clear about the role of the pastor, how it's limited to men. First Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1. And women are not to function as teachers over men. In the home, husbands are the heads of their families. It does not mean that pastors lord over the churches or husbands bark orders to their families. Rather, they should be examples of the self-sacrificing servant love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And being the leaders means that pastors are accountable to the Lord for the direction of His church, and husbands will answer to God for the spiritual direction of your families. We should not give in to our culture by adopting equal roles in home and church. Again, this does not mean our ladies do not have an important part. I thank God for our ladies who are working in our church. I thank God for godly ladies who are standing strong in the home. But God has given some very specific roles for men and for women. And I believe this chapter here teaches us that Men, the leaders should be men. Then thirdly, leaders must be both godly in character and qualified by gift and training. Leaders must be godly and qualified. The men whom Ezra sent were called chief men. They were called men of understanding. And also Ezra... Trust these men with the gold and the silver as they were to safely transport them to Jerusalem. And he reminds them in verse 28, he says, in verse 28, he says, And I said unto them, Ye are holy unto the Lord, and the vessels are holy also. Ye are holy unto the Lord. Ezra was not threatening them. 
but rather he was thankful that the Lord raised up these godly trained men to serve in the leadership positions along with him. And likewise, local churches need godly leaders qualified for the office of pastor, both by gift and training, and the qualifications of, for pastor, First Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, are primarily character qualities. There is the quality of being apt to teach, which requires a gift, both gift and training, but no man perfectly matches all the high standards for a pastor, but we should not put men into those places that lack these qualities. God will bless the work that honors him by trusting him to raise up godly, qualified leaders and workers. Here's another quote I found that fits right along here. Never confuse a desire to be used by God with a desire to be famous with men. Usually to be used by God means to be hated by most men. I had a, a pastor who, when I told him that my desire in life was to become a pastor, when I was just a young man, he said, if there's anything else you can do, do it. I kind of wondered about that. That was strange advice. If there's anything else in life you can do, then pastor, you better do it. I think he'd been through uh, some rough times, and he, he knew what being a pastor meant. Now, I wouldn't want to be anything else but a pastor. But you know what time? Sometimes you're not the most popular person, but I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not here to be popular. I'm here to give you God's truth. And then for you young men, and even young ladies uh, uh, who need to be the workers in churches, along with our uh, other later ladies as well. Learning ministry is an apprenticeship program. You learn to do it by doing it with someone. Find someone doing it and do it with them. I think those are good uh, pieces of advice. Now, we honor God by trusting Him, secondly here, for protection from the enemy. We honor God by trusting Him to protect our work and our families from the enemy. Now our text does not really reveal what must have been maybe quite interesting, namely the details of how and when Ezra told the returning exiles that there would not be any armed guards accompanying them. We really don't find that he, when he tells them that and what they might have, what their reaction might have been. But it's amazing. There's no indication here that the people said, uh oh, wait a minute. I'm not going. There's no indication here that they were bailing out. There's no indication here that it says, nope, we can't do that. Quite amazing. There was not a group of descend, uh, descendants crying out, and this is, you know, stupid. This is insane. It's suicide to venture out into hostile, robber-infested desert loaded with gold and silver with no military pro uh, protection. Nobody protested. In verse 18, Ezra, or in verse 21, it, uh, Ezra reports, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, and we might afflict ourselves before God to seek him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all of our substance. And then he explains in verse 22 
that this was necessary because he had told the king, the hand of God, our God is upon them for good that seek him. So because of this, Ezra was ashamed to ask for a military escort, and so they fasted and besought our God for this, and he was entreated of us, verse 23. And then verse 31 again, And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such that lay in wait by the way. And so this group safely arrived in Jerusalem because they trusted the Lord. It's interesting that later in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was also a man of faith. But we'll find in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9, Nehemiah accepted the king's protection. There's no indication there that he was sinning or lacking in faith for doing so. But it does kind of raise a question, perhaps, that's kind of tricky, I think. Which can I... I really don't uh, have time to spend a lot of time on that, but when is it wrong to use human means to, in addition to trusting the Lord? I think the normal pattern is for us to trust God while thankfully using the means that he gives us. You know, you pray for protection as you travel on the highways, but you better still fasten your seatbelt, and most of you do. Number one, it's the law. Number two, it does protect you. You pray for healing, but you still go to the doctor, right? You take the prescribed medicine. You pray for a job, but you still make a resume out. You dress appropriately. You go for an interview. You see, God normally expects us to use the means he provides along with the faith in him. And there are times for our prayer, you know what, there are times when we shouldn't be praying, we should be going. There are times for prayer, but there are also times to put feet to our prayers. Sometimes using human means will lead us away from trust in the Lord, and it would be a poor witness to unbelievers. And often this is an individual matter before the Lord. But you think about some examples of that, and you think about a man like George Mueller, he believed that he would not demonstrate faith in the Lord and thus not honor him to advertise at financial needs for his orphanages. And I'm sure that he was obeying God in the way that he operated, making his needs known only to God in prayer. And yet others have revealed the needs of their ministries to God's people, and yet they're trusting God, asking him to provide. You know, we need to be sure that we're seeking the honor to honor God, and that we're consciously trusting Him. Now, our text shows that God's people were seeking to do God's work. And we need to recognize there are enemies and there are those that are lying in wait. And so we desperately need God's hand over us to protect us. And the enemy is seeking to destroy us and our little ones, our children, The enemy is seeking to tear apart our families and to bring down church leaders. And I know of many men formerly in the ministry who have been uh, brought dishonor to God and his church through divorce or moral failure. Satan is especially targeting leaders. 
Knowing that there are enemies and ambushes along the way, we must humble ourselves and seek God's protection through prayer and in many in special times of need, maybe even through fasting. God will bless his work through us when we seek to honor him by modest, humble faith. But then notice, secondly, God blesses the work that seeks to honor him by moral integrity. Some scholars have questioned the amount of gold and silver that's mentioned here. Amounts to many tons and represents millions of dollars in today's currency. But if the king thought that Ezra's God really existed, he would have wanted to give a gift fitting for a king. And when you add in the gifts from the king's counselors and princes and the Jews who did not return, it added up to a very sizable amount. Ezra was concerned to give a report back to the king, and the entire amount was delivered to Jerusalem without any of it being skimmed off because of greed or corruption. And so he parceled out the items by weight, and he let them know that they were accountable to deliver the amount to God's house in Jerusalem. And when they got there, everything was numbered, and it was weighed, recording the numbers So it tells us there in verse 34, by number and by weight of everyone, and all the weight was written at that time. Perhaps some of the leaders might have grumbled, well, don't they trust us? Why do we have to weigh everything on both ends, and why do we have to write it down? After all, God is watching all we do. But as Paul put it in regard to being careful in handling the gift to the poor in Jerusalem, he said, providing for honest things not only in the sight of God, but also in the sight of men. You see, if we do not have proper accounting procedures, it exposes workers to temptations and accusations. I heard of a church in California where the members made out their checks to John Jones Ministries. Pastor John, not his real name, But he was the only person who handled the funds. I think some of you'd have a problem with that if that was the way it was done here. He made all the deposits. He dispersed all the checks. You see, that's just simply an open invitation to corruption and scandal. And we need to be scrupulous in matters of financial integrity, even in small matters. I do not sign the checks here at Spooner Baptist Church, nor do I know what any individual gives in the offering. I don't want to know. It's not my business. We have those who are charged with maintaining confidentiality and others, uh, other accounting procedures ensure that the work here is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but in the sight of men. And when Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, the which at least is the context of money. And he went on to promise that if we're faithful in money matters, then the Lord will entrust true riches to us, which is the context in the context the souls of men. So the matter of integrity extends beyond financial integrity to the whole of man's character. And Ezra was a man of moral integrity. And that's one reason that God's hand of blessing was upon him. And so God blesses the work that seeks to honor him by modest faith, by moral integrity, and finally, God blesses the work that seeks to honor him by motivated worship. The whole aim of this undertaking of moving 5,000 people across 900 miles of desert was to worship God 
by offering sacrifices at his temple in Jerusalem. And as I pointed out earlier, our chapter repeats this phrase, the house of our God or our Lord, six times in reference to the temple. Worshiping God at his house was so important that these exiles, that uh, to these exiles they wanted uh, willing to suffer hardship and danger and great inconvenience to move back to Israel. As soon as they got back to Jerusalem, they rested. They accounted for the items that were to be put in the temple, and then they offered sacrifices to the Lord. And the sin offerings availed as this atonement for sins for all of Israel. The burnt offerings typified the surrender for the entire nation to the service of the Lord. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who offered himself on the cross as an atonement for our sins. And so our worship must always focus on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ should be our motivation. He is the reason why we're here this morning. As Paul put it, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the Lord is, the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And if we exalt Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death on the cross, God will honor the ministry of this church. God's people in Ezra's day were far from perfect. In the next chapter, we'll see how Ezra was appalled to learn that both the people and the priests had corrupted themselves by intermarrying with the people of the land. And Nehemiah had to deal with further problems a few years later. By the way, did you know this? There is no perfect church on earth. I had a man tell me, you know, he says he said that to me. He says, there's not a perfect church. Uh, uh, you let me know where there is one, and I'll come join it, and I'll, then it'll be imperfect. But that's why Spooner Baptist Church is not a perfect church, because I'm your pastor. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. There's no perfect church. We're all prone to the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Corruption forms on us easily as rust as on a nail left out in the rain. But we can be holy people before the Lord. We can seek Him. We can experience His blessing on this work here if we will seek to honor Him by modest, humble faith, moral integrity, and motivated worship. I trust you came to church to worship the Lord today. I encourage you to join me in laboring to make this church a work that God truly blesses. Let's pray. Father,